Well, good morning, everybody. Oh, that's a little sad. Good morning, everybody. Oh, that's much better. Um, It's great to be here. This is the first time I've gone to teach since we've reopened Stone. For those who don't know me, I'm Shelby Hunt. Um, Me and my wife, Rachel, have come. And as you can tell from my accent, we have not come from some other part of the UK, but we are from the States originally. But we've been living in the UK for about three years now. We've been actually in Gravesend for over a year. Um, And most of the time, though, we are down at Ainsford, which is the other church that we're partnered with down there. So it might be why you haven't seen me around much, um, but you might have seen me on the live stream if you've been watching over the last uh, year or so. And today, um, I think I accidentally told you the wrong thing, Barb, because today we're still in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. Uh, So we're actually... But actually, you know what, like Barb said, some of the stuff that Barb mentioned will tie in a little bit. It might like pop up as we talk through it. We're actually in 1 Timothy 3, or 1 Timothy 3. I got to get used to that, right? In the States, it's always 1 Timothy. Here, it's 1 Timothy. But it's 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. Um, and we're going to talk through that. So if you have your Bibles open, just even if you're at 1 Timothy 2, you're like right next to 1 Timothy 3 anyways. So... With all that said, we are continuing our study in this passage um, last week, whether, I know most of you probably were all up here, so you heard Joel talk through the passage last week, which was the first of two lists, right? Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. He, in chapter three, he gives us two different lists, and the first list was about what he called overseers, uh, which is basically somebody who supervises the church, literally over sees the church. And the thing is, is that we're talking about church leadership. The reason why we want to focus on this specific chapter of 1 Timothy is because the church is a place that should be a place that grows and develops leaders. The church is a place that people should come to, and the result of them coming to church, attending church, is that they should become more and more Christ-like. Um, The church isn't designed, right? The church is not designed to be a place where you come, you get to see a few people, maybe sing a few songs, hear a nice speech, and then just go home, right? The church should be a place where you're coming and you're growing in your faith, right? If we're doing our job right, when you leave today, when you leave any Sunday from a church, you should be a little bit closer to God. And so that's not to say that, you know, Churches, like you're automatically supposed to be part of church leadership if you attend a church. Because we're all in different places, right? People are growing, some people are new believers, some people have been around for a while. But what we're going to see today, what we're going to focus on is that if you have been saved for a while, if you have been living the Christian life for a while, it should be natural for you to eventually be in a place where you're serving the church. Because when you become a Christian, right, you're not... You're no longer just alone. You become part of the body of Christ. You become part of a movement that is led by Jesus himself. And since most of you weren't at Ainsford, in fact, I can tell by looking around that none of you were at Ainsford last week, and I am also fairly confident that uh, you guys probably didn't run home and try to listen to my sermon as soon as you got done with uh, church last week, I'm going to just quickly just talk a little bit about what I said last week because it applies to what we're reading this week. And first, um, I just want to say what we're reading, what, I re- what we read in First Timothy 
And even what uh, the passage that Barb read, I think I stand in the camp that is not necessarily something that we should just copy and paste onto our lives today. And I have reasons for that. I talked about it last week. So if you want to know more, go watch that sermon. It's my little shameless plug. Or just come talk to me afterwards. But I just want to break it down that when we are reading 1 Timothy, we got to remember that this is a letter written by Paul in a specific time to a specific person about specific issues in a specific church. So last week, when we were looking at these first seven verses, when we were looking at these qualifications for an overseer, I saw that Paul was kind of has like three themes or three categories that you could say for us. Um, first, he says an overseer should be somebody who has a good reputation. Second, an overseer is a person who is self-controlled. And third, it's a person who can disciple others. An overseer is a person who has a good reputation, is self-controlled, and can disciple others. And that was the list for overseer, but now we're on to this second list. We're on to this new list. And while the, that one was about overseers, this list seems to be about Deacons, right? I'm pretty sure that no matter what translation you have, the first word in verse 8 is the word deacon. But here's the thing. We need to talk about this word. Because, you see, deacon is this word that's been built up culturally. No matter where you're from, I feel like deacon is a word that gets thrown around in church culture all the time. So when I even say the word deacon, there's probably like an image already in your head of what does a deacon look like or what does a deacon do. But here's the thing. I mean, I had the same image too, but as I've studied, I've come to realize that sometimes my image of deacon was not actually what Paul was thinking when he wrote this. Because what I've come to learn is that deacon is not an English word, right? You know, in language, we have this all the time, right? Languages like to borrow words from other languages when they're trying to describe something. Uh, An example of this, kind of funny example of this, was um, me and my wife are originally from California. And when we were living there, the church that we attended would often send uh, mission trips down to Mexico to this thing called Mexican Caravan Ministries. And oftentimes it was was the youth that would go because it would just be a weekend and it would give them a taste of missions. Well, this one trip, uh, the missionary down there challenged the youth that um, the main portion of why they were there was they would go and build a shelter for a homeless family. So the missionary was challenging the youth that came, hey, while you're there, spend some time, talk to the family that we're building a shelter for, and learn a new Spanish word. And they're like, okay. So they're out there, and these two young girls come up to the missionary while they're, the construction's going on because all the jobs are filled. So they're like, hey, what should we do? And the missionary's like, well, have you learned your Spanish word yet? And they're like, well, no. And so he, the missionary, being very cheeky, tells them that they should go ask the family, what is the Spanish word for tortilla? Now, if you're not aware, the Spanish word for tortilla is, is tortilla, right? That's just a word that we borrow in English to describe what a tortilla is, right? But uh, these two naive poor girls went up to this family in Mexico and asked them, como se dice, how do you say tortilla? Which really confused the person because the person was like, Tor- tortilla. And apparently this went on for a little bit where they were like, no, 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 how do you say tortilla? And they're like, tortilla. And eventually like, it clicked in their minds that, oh, wait, tortilla is tortilla, right? Deacon is the same thing. Deacon is just a borrowed word. It's an untranslated word. It's a Greek word. And so 
when that should bring the question, well, if deacon is just this borrowed word, well, what does deacon actually mean? Well, here's the thing. And this is where it comes, some translation fun comes in with the Bible. The word deacon is throughout all of the New Testament. In fact, it shows up 29 times. Now, if you've read through the New Testament, you might be thinking, well, wait a second. I don't remember deacon showing up that much as I've read through it. Well, here's the thing. Deacon just means servant. In fact, almost every time, except for very few instances, the word deacon is translated as servant. Like, there's a famous example uh, when the disciples are arguing among themselves, like, who's the greatest? And Jesus is like, hey, you shouldn't do that. The Gentiles rule over each other. That's not how you're going to do it. And in Matthew 20, 26, he tells them this. It will not be like this among you, but whoever wants to become great among you must be your deacon, your servant. Or Paul, when he's talking to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 3, verse 5, this is how he describes him and Apollos, because they're arguing about what, who do they follow, and he's like, this is what you guys need to know. Therefore, what is Apollos, what is Paul? Deacons, servants, through whom you've believed, and to each as the Lord gave. And even when Paul is talking to Timothy in this letter, in the next chapter, in verse 6 of chapter 4, he says this, By pointing out such things to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good deacon, servant of Christ Jesus, having nourished yourself on the words of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. What I'm trying to say is that a deacon isn't some kind of special office, it's just a person who has stepped forward to be used by God. In other words, it's something that naturally every Christian should become. Because what we, looking at these lists, if we break down these lists in light of like the whole New Testament, we kind of see from Paul's writings that he kind of sees the Christian life in maybe three stages, right? First, you're a new believer. I mean, that makes sense, right? When you're first saved, you're a new believer. You're, you're learning about your faith. You're learning about this amazing being who created you and loves you and just what he's done for you. Because when you're first saved, you have an idea of what Christ has done, right? You have to believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. So you have an idea of what you've been saved from. But as you grow in your faith, your realization of how great that act was grows. Or uh, there's a Bible study that I like to lead, um, and it kind of uses this illustration. So I'm going to just use my arm here. So if this is your life, at some point you become saved. So right here where my hand is open, that's where you become saved. And then from that point forward in your Christian life, your view of God should infinitely be increasing. And your view of yourself should be decreasing. You should be realizing every day how great, how amazing, how awesome is the God that we serve. And you should realize more and more, oh man, look at what he saved me from. And what's in between this gap that connects you to God is Jesus, is the cross. So what that means is as your view of God increases, your view of yourself decreases, your view of Jesus exponentially gets bigger. And so, right, that's you as a new believer. You're, you're somebody who's learning about your faith. You're growing in your view of Jesus. But eventually, you decide to move, you, you need to move on. Eventually, as Paul puts it, you move from milk to meat. And one of the key things of a growing faith, one of the key signs that your faith is growing is that you will naturally just start serving the church. You'll naturally start serving God more and more. In fact, 
In Ephesians 2, he tells us that he has set up good works for us to do before we were even born. So you keep growing in your faith, and eventually you become a servant, right? You start serving or a deacon. So that's the, that's the progress, right? You start as a new believer, you grow in your faith, you start serving the church, so naturally you become a servant. And eventually, you might be wondering, well, how does the overseer tie into this? Well, in the Bible, overseer is very much tied to the elders of the church. It's often the elders of the church are called the overseers. And do you know what elder means in Greek? Well, it means the same thing in English. It means old person, right? <laughs> and so, in other words, when you mature in your faith, when you grow from serving the church, eventually you reach a place where your experience now allows you to become an overseer. Which is why when we look at these two lists, they're actually really, really similar if you look at them. There's only a few key differences. I mean, one of the big differences is that when you look through them, the overseer actually has a lot more character qualities. There's a lot more specific character qualities that are listed for an overseer, but that makes sense. Because the overseer already has all the base, all the qualities that a servant should already have. Because they're just a matured servant. In fact, as they grow, they're going to develop more character qualities to build. And the other key difference, and this again makes total sense when you see how the structure works, is that it only says deacons are supposed to be tested. I don't know if you've noticed this, but last week... We read through, and it's a, all this great list of all these things that an overseer should be, but it never says that an overseer needs to be tested before they become an overseer. Well, that makes sense because an overseer should already have been a servant, and they're already been tested, and they've already been living a faithful life. So with all that said, um, hopefully you still have your Bibles open. We're going to dive back into these verses. Let's break them down. Let's look through them one by one. And we're going to start by reading just verses 8 through 10. So will you join me as I read that? It says this, Deacons, servants, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. First, like I said, a lot of the qualities between overseer and deacons are very similar, right? Dignified, the first thing that deacons are listed is very close to being above reproach, which is the first thing an overseer is listed as. Um, you have not addicted to much wine is very much is very similar to being not a drunkard, and not greedy or for, not greedy is very similar to not being a lover of money. So when you have these two lists that are very similar, the thing the Bible is trying to get you to do is look at the difference. In fact. When you read the Bible, here's a Bible pro tip, is that if you ever see things that are very similar, that's very intentional. Oh, the Bible, the way the Hebrews, like Hebrew scripture is written, the way Jewish authors write their scriptures, that they like to put things side by side that are very similar, so that you can see that what they're similar, but they want you to notice what's different between the two. And so if we look at this, when we look at these differences, we notice that there's actually one really big, unique thing that's listed there near the end in verses 9 and 10. First, it says that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And all that means is that they know and fully understand and fully believe in the gospel. They're not wishy-washy. They're not like the man that James 
talks about in the first chapter of his letter when he says that a man who is double-minded, unstable in all his ways, tossed back and forth by the wind. In fact, Paul is stating that faith and conscience should bring you, the fact that he's stating that, should bring you back to the first chapter of this letter. Because the way Paul works is that he's always kind of looping back on that same main idea, which is in the first few verses of the letter, he tells us that good teaching, good teaching is going to lead to us sharing love with other people and with God. And that love comes from a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a good conscience. So to be a servant, to get to that point where you can serve, you need to first be under good teaching. But it's not just something that you just learn. It's not that you just sit here and you listen. It's something that you actually take in and you start to understand it. You start to ponder it. It's something that you actually build a foundation on, that you stand on. And, well, you may be thinking, okay, well, I talked about faith and conscience, but then that, that list that I just said, it was a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a good conscience. So where does the pure heart part come into this? Well, I see that come in into what Paul says about being tested, right? Paul says that deacons should be tested to see if they are blameless. And you know who is somebody who will be blameless? Somebody who has a pure heart. So remember, when we're reading through this, this letter is all about teaching us what false teaching does and what good teaching does. In fact, what this letter tells us is that if Joel or me or Barb or Les or anybody, anybody who gets up here or gets up in front of Ainsford and teaches, if we're doing our job correctly, you should naturally be able to pass this test because the natural just um, consequences of our good teaching should be that you have all three of those things. Now, verse 11 is an interesting one depending on what your translation is. And real quick, um, we need to talk about translations real quick before we get to verse 11. And again, I'm not trying to get too much on a tangent, but I just want to let you know that when you read your English Bible, right, it is somebody's interpretation of what the original Greek says or the original Hebrew says. Now, I'm not saying that's bad. I mean, the people who translate are very smart people. They spend a lot of time praying. Usually there's groups of them so that they're all checking each other's work. They're praying about it. They're thinking about it. They're really debating what each word should be translated as. But because it's us humans translating, that means a little bit of a bias can seep in there. And so while I do enjoy the ESV, that's what I've been reading from, I do think the ESV kind of misses the mark in verse 11. And I'll tell you that in a second because verse 11 says this, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And the thing that I think they get wrong is the their wives part. Because in Greek, <laughs> because in Greek, the, that word for wives is the same word for women. In fact, I'm in the firm uh, translation camp that it should be translated as the women likewise should be all of these things. And I have reasons for that, but I feel like that's a whole different sermon, so I'm not going to go down that road. If you want to talk about that, come see me afterwards. But what I want to point out is that there's actually the list between the men and the women, if you want to break it up that way, is not different, right? They both, it both starts with them being dignified. That's the first word both use. I mean, 
Slanderer is very close to double-tongued. Sober-minded lines up with not a lover of too much wine. In fact, the last one is the only one that seems to be a little bit different, which it says faithful in all. But really, what is being faithful than standing firm in your faith with a good conscience? All that is to say that it doesn't matter if you are a man or a woman, we are all called to serve. And it doesn't matter what gender you are, we're all held to the same high standard. And verse 12 says this, let deacons each be a husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households. Well, Paul finishes his list by talking about what the household of a servant should look like. And I know that phrase, husband of one wife, might be like, well, wait a second, how does that work with the whole women being deacons? And I'd love to get into the details, but again, don't have the time. Come see me afterward, or actually watch my sermon from last week, because I talk about that phrase. But what I want to show is that Paul is concerned with your family, with how the servant's family looks, because the servant, your family is a great revealer of who you are, right? When you meet somebody, when you get to know them, it's always like amazing to get to know somebody for a while and then meet their parents, because when you meet their parents, you start to realize why they are the way they are, right? There's just so many things that maybe like start connecting in your mind, like, oh, so that's why you do this, that's why you say this, that's why you act this way. Because honestly, that is how families work, right? We encourage each other, we, we build each other up. And so what Paul is pointing out is that as people, as servants, you should be building up your family as well. You're not just serving the church, but you also serve your family well as well. Well as well, that's kind of a funny way to say it. Um, so it's just interesting too that he also lists that children, being able to manage your children well, because honestly, um, overseers are supposed to be people who can disciple each other, right? It's one of the specific things an overseer is told is that they should be able to teach. Well, a great way for a servant to learn how to teach is to learn how to disciple their children. Because your, your, your children are your disciples, I mean, right? Like, I'm going to admit, I am my parents' disciple. I learned so much from my parents. There's a reason why I talk and do certain things because of the way that they raised me. And in the same way, that is Paul's encouragement for the servant. Be sure that you are learning how to disciple others by discipling your family. And he ends this whole section, right? He ends... The whole, these two lists with this bit of encouragement in verse 13, he says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Paul started this whole section, right, both of these lists with an encouragement that we should want to be overseers. He says it's a noble pursuit. In fact, it should be like, if somebody asks you what you want to be when you grow up, overseer should be one of the answers that you give. And he ends the section also with this encouragement that we should become servants. Paul really thinks that all Christians should grow into what we read here today. And because you serve the church, it says you gain two things, right? He says you gain a good standing. Now that might be weird, to say that you gain a good standing because, you know, we're all about, you know, you got to be humble, putting other people in front of you, stuff like that. But, I mean, that totally lines up with what Jesus told his servant, I mean, his disciples, 
that verse that I read earlier, Matthew 20, 26, Jesus said, but whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Because according to the world, right, the people who become great, the people that get to do all the best stuff are the people that rule over other people. But that's not how the kingdom is built. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you have to learn how to put others above yourself. You have to learn how to become a servant. And the second thing you gain is great confidence. And this also might seem a little bit backwards. How would serving others people like build up your own confidence? Well, by serving, you are actually living out your faith. And when you start to live out your faith, you start to learn firsthand how much love God has for you because you're now showing that love to other people. And as you do this, your view of God will increase and your view of yourself will decrease, but that means your view of Jesus that stands in the gap will just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And guess what? As you serve, as your view of Jesus increases, you become more like him. And as you become more like him, you become more confident in the God that loves you. So what? Why study all this stuff? Why talk through all this? Well, if it's not apparent yet, we are all called to serve. We are all called to serve. Now again, the Christian life is a process, right? You don't go from being saved to overnight being an overseer. In fact, Paul warns us against that. He says you shouldn't have an overseer be somebody who is a new believer. But that doesn't mean that you, should always, you shouldn't be seeking to mature in your faith. That's not an excuse to be like, well, I just got saved, so I don't need to worry about all this stuff about serving or becoming an overseer. That's for much later. No, that's something that you should be striving towards. And if you're someone who has been a Christian for a while, if you're someone who knows and understands your faith, if you're someone who's been coming to church, well, then you are called to come and serve. We need to remove this idea that the deacon is this grand and lofty position. All it is, all a deacon is, is a natural step forward for the Christian. Because all it means is just being a servant. So two questions to leave you with. First, are you still on milk when you should be on meat, when you should be on deeper subjects? And how are you serving the church today? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for just this opportunity to come up and join uh, my fellow brothers and sisters here at Stone. It's so great to be able to see new people, um, to just uh, see people that we haven't seen in a while. And it's just so encouraging to be here with the body of believers. It's also really encouraging, God, that even though we're here and the people down in Ainsford are a few miles away, that we're still one body. We're still one church, God. I'm so thankful that you are a God who promises that you will mature us, God, that we, as we strive to do this, we're not doing it just by ourselves. We don't have to do it just on our own power, that the Holy Spirit is in us. And as you said in 1 Peter, that we are confident that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. God, I just pray that we will be called to come and serve you that each one of us will be willing to step forward and be willing to do whatever it is you ask of us because that is what we should strive to do. God, I just pray that this week 
every day of our lives, we will be servants. In your name, amen.